Helo a chroeso i bodlediad yr Academy Genedlaethol ar gyfer arweinyddiaeth a ddysgol yng Nghymru. Podlediad sy'n rhannu materion ac arferion arweinyddiaeth allweddol ar draws y sector addysg yma yng Nghymru ac yn rhyngwladol. Hello and welcome to the podcast from the National Academy for Educational Leadership in Wales, a podcast that shares key leadership issues and practices across the education sector here in Wales and internationally. I'm Damien Beach and I'm an Academy Associate with the Leadership Academy. This episode features Professor Laura McAllister, CBE. Laura is Professor of Public Policy and the Governance of Wales at Cardiff University's Wales Governance Centre. Her research centres on Welsh politics, devolution, electoral reform and gender. She is committed to ensuring the impact of her academic research and its benefits for citizens and institutions. Laura was an international footballer for Wales women's national football team with 24 caps and was team captain. Well, bwrw da i chi gyd a chroeso uh, unwaith eto i'n wemynar datgloi arwynyddiaeth a pleser uh, y bod yma i wahodd yr athro Laura McAllister i ymuno gyda ni. A very good morning to you all and welcome to our Leadership Unlocked uh, series once again. And we have a great pleasure in inviting Professor Laura McAllister to join us this morning uh, to give a presentation. Uh- what a da, Paub. Um, very, very thrilled to be here. Um, it's my absolute pleasure to be joining you uh, again today. I've worked with the Academy a couple of times and it's always been an absolute pleasure to join you, um, to have the kind of conversations that I know you're up for as an organisation. And I'm certainly up for somebody who engages with this agenda fairly regularly. Can I check, first of all, that the volume is OK for you all? Can you all hear me? Just give a thumbs up, those who I can see and so on. And I'm going to, if you just give me a moment, I'm just going to share my screen so that I can uh, use a couple of uh, PowerPoints as we go along. Okay. Uh, well, it's always a real pleasure to be with you. I mean, I've, I've, I think this is my third time of speaking to the Leadership Academy. Um, I've really enjoyed the sessions with you in the past, um, mainly because I, you, you come across as a group of leaders um, who are really up for the challenge, you know, a group uh, who are working in a, in a sector that is very close to my heart, first and foremost. Um, education is, is a vehicle for um, all significant change, in my opinion. So it's a very um, important uh, sector to work with. But more importantly than that, I just get the impression that you are all wishing to become better leaders, leaders who can drive change in the educational world that you work in. And the desire to become a better leader, in my opinion, is probably one of the most fundamental um, prerequisites. Um, the other reason why I, I've enjoyed these seminars with uh, the Educational Academy is because I really enjoy the interaction and the challenge of speaking to people like yourselves who are at the chalk face um, or at the whiteboard face, I should uh, we should say these days. Um, I enjoy that interaction because I've always felt that learning, especially leadership learning, is a, is a two-way process. Um, learning is for life, um, like a dog at Christmas. You know, it's not something that we stop doing at any particular point in our, our lives or in our careers or in our professional development. It never stops. Um, 
And there's always plenty from these sessions that I take away and think about and process in terms of my own um, various leadership roles. So, you know, it's, it's as useful for me as it, as it is for you in, in, in that sense. Um, you, you might not or you might know something about what I do, but I've put up here a couple of the roles that I currently hold or have held uh, up until recently. Um, now, I suppose if you just read the bullet points, you think that's quite a lot of leadership roles. And, I, and I'm certainly not being immodest or boastful about showing you those. Uh, the reason I'm listing them is because I would still describe myself as a aspiring leader, um, somebody who is by no means at the end of a leadership journey, whatever that means. I don't, as I'll say in a moment, I don't believe there is an end to a leadership journey. Um, but whilst the roles look senior, and they are, plenty of them are, I've chaired Sport Wales, you know, with a budget of 50 million for a, a two year term. And I've been on the board of UK Sport that we're spending in the region of 370 million on Olympic and Paralympic programs. And I've, I've taken on various roles for the Welsh Government and for the Senedd more generally. But the reason I list them is not to, to show off in any way, but merely to say I am very, very conscious that I am still learning constantly, almost on a daily basis, around what works well in different organisations as a leader. And the, the, the most obvious lessons, and you see a degree of variety in those um, roles, some of them are political, some of them are academic, some of them, quite a few of them are actually uh, sports based and football based. So very different sectors, but the learning is always very similar. It's about myself. Um, so it's about who I am as a person and what I can bring to the organization in question without compromising either myself and my values and my personality. But that is of benefit to uh, the organization more widely. And that's the point of my title slide, really. And um, being a good leader, it's all about you. All we actually have as leaders is ourselves, ultimately. And that's where we start from. Yes, we can build a wonderful team around us, a really a group of competent and, and driven individuals. And we can change the culture of an organization to become attuned to good leadership. But the reality is it all starts with us. So everything I say is going to be about humans, personality, um, ego, self, authenticity, all of those words that come up in this debate. When we talk about the leadership journey, we often assume that there is an end point or a destination towards which we are all striving, almost like we set off from Cardiff with a view to get into Edinburgh via London. Where are you on that journey? Um, I am not that keen on that as a metaphor because I think there are various staging posts along the way. And sometimes the journey is actually very convoluted. Sometimes it can mean going back to Cardiff to pick up something you've forgotten or stopping off at Bristol Parkway to pick up a sandwich or having a break in Manchester Piccadilly and so on and so forth. This isn't a simple trajectory of getting from A to B in terms of being a good leader. Um, I've often used the metaphor of myself being a championship level manager in football terms. But I deliberately say this isn't all about promotion to the Premier League. Because leadership can happen at a whole host of levels. And that's a really important principle. Leadership is everywhere in an organization. It displays itself in different ways. And sometimes it can take on a different perspective and a different profile. But leadership happens everywhere. 
Um, so it's not always about aspiring for the next physical step or promotion to a higher hi- hierarchical power based position. Sometimes you can find you can become a better leader by stepping back or stepping off the, the return to Cardiff or stopping off at Bristol Parkway analogy in order to refine your leadership skills. And although you're always moving as a leader, you're not always moving in one direction. You can be moving sideways, backwards sometimes, and not in a negative way, um, and then forwards um, subsequently. So, so, the, so the two points I'm making right at the outset that I'm going to elaborate uh, in more depth during my talk this morning is, first of all, it's about you as leaders. Uh, and I'll tell you why you shouldn't listen to leadership textbooks in a moment. It's about you, yourself, who you are, your values, your personality, your family, your, fav- your, your, your traits, what you like, what you don't like. And secondly, it's not a single track journey. You are on uh, a multi-track journey that can take a variety of forms depending on which way you want to go. Now, we're all fed up with being told that we're in extremely difficult times. Um, We've just come out of the fire break lockdown. Who knows what Christmas will bring? Massive impact on our lives, obviously, and, and as you know only too well, on education generally. It's affected us enough in the higher education sector, but Looking at colleges and schools, I can just see how much work you've had to put in just to keep things on a relatively even keel and cope with the number of learners that we have in those settings, never mind the A-level um, fiasco. Uh, congratulations, by the way, um, from, from a parent, first and foremost, for all that you've done for our children during uh, this time. It's been quite remarkable, I think. And, um, you know, the term key workers takes on a, a different dimension, I think, when you apply that to to education. So we've got that. We've got the pandemic. We know where we are at the moment in in that journey. And aside from that, we've got Brexit. We've got the potential of uh, leaving the European Union um, in 2021 without a deal. We've got the new internal market bill, which is um, claimed by both devolved governments to be a clawback of devolved powers. We've got a new US president-elect in Joe Biden when eventually Trump decides to concede. And just to compound it all, or maybe to enhance it all, we've got the Senate elections when we will be electing a new Senate of 60 members next May, just five months away now. Um, And then from then, of course, we will be electing uh, a new, potentially a new first minister, or at least re-electing a first minister um, that we have. So the context is important because it seems to me that we're in the middle of a kind of swirling storm of uncertainty. And when we're in the middle of a swirling storm of uncertainty, when things are so fragile, it's us as humans and us as leaders that come into their own. Um, Leadership is more important than ever when we are in a crisis. Um, Take the political leadership that we have at the moment. Um, We we, we live in a multi-governance world, so we've got leadership at local authority level. We've got leadership at Welsh national level with Mark Drakeford and his team, of course. And then we've got UK reserved areas being led by Boris Johnson and his cabinet. And whatever you think of the performance of each of those uh, tiers, I don't think many of us would have relished being in those positions at this moment in time. Hugely difficult. Having to make literally life and death decisions on a daily basis about citizens is a very, very difficult leadership environment. But it's one when good leaders come into their own. And we're going to talk a little bit about why and how that happens um, in particular. 
A crisis such as a public health pandemic is also a moment to reset. And I think, again, I would urge you to use this time. I mean, I'm not suggesting you've got spare time, but to use this moment, this context to really think again about what's important in life. Um, a couple of us uh, got involved in an organization called Reset Cymru, where we, we set it up ourselves. Um, the, the purpose of it really was to try and um, relocate Wales into a more values, values-driven um, environment where we thought more about each other and community and equality and fairness and so on, rather than pursuing a path which seems to me to be one that benefits some people far more and far better um, than it does others. So it is a moment to reset, to think differently and to think critically. And this this is also going to be a theme of my talk this morning, because I, I get very frustrated when people are fearful of thinking critically, of challenging each other and of challenging leaders um, and of challenging organisations. Um, we've had enough groupthink, quite frankly, over the years. And what we need um, is to become much more forensic and much tougher in our challenge to each other. Um, always polite, always courteous, always respectful, but tough, challenging. I think that's really fundamental um, in every uh, in every uh, situation that we're in. Now, what I'm a bit of a leadership cynic, if I'm going to be really honest. I don't mean about doing leadership, about the kind of action orientation of leadership, but about the theory and the writing on leadership. And it's a little bit ironic because before I moved to Cardiff University uh, four years ago now, I was at Liverpool University and I was actually in a management school. Although I'm a public policy and uh, politics uh, expert, I was in a, a management school which mainly had critical leadership thinkers in it. And although it wasn't my field, the theory of reading, I did engage with a lot of that agenda and I shared a lot of my thinking with them. And I found it quite frustrating, if I'm being really honest, because it seemed to me that it's quite easy um, to write theoretically about leadership, um, but far, far harder to actually understand the human element to leadership. That's why I'm a cynic about the pontificating of leadership. And, you know, if I say that normally in a leadership seminar people are kind of people's fingers are hovering over the leave meeting button thinking what am I going to learn from this person who doesn't even believe in theory and, and conceptual let me explain why um, anything you can read in a leadership textbook okay and I'm not saying don't read them I'm just saying be cynical about your reading of them anything you can read in a leadership textbook has been through a whole set of proofreads and iterations it's been sanitized, it's been polished, it's been neutralized to an inch of its death by the time you actually read it. Um, so it, you can pick up a textbook um, at WH Smith's on Cardiff Central train station and you can read how to become a good leader or how to show emotional intelligence or how to negotiate well. But at the end of the day, these by and large, are written by people who've done very little practical leadership themselves. And to be perfectly honest, from my experience in some of these organizations, chairing, for example, the Senate's expert panel on assembly reform, uh, we, we recommended the um, uh, the vote at 16 change. So uh, the legislation that came in the Senate and Elections Wales Act came from our expert panel. We recommended changing the electoral system. That hasn't seen the light of day yet to make it more proportional. 
and probably most controversial, our biggest recommendation was to um, enlarge the assembly to uh, between 80 and 90 MSs to allow it to do its job properly. All difficult and controversial and politically sensitive issues. Um, but leading a, an expert panel at a time of kind of political turmoil teaches you about real leadership. You know, it's about standing your ground. It's about being able to communicate effectively with a range of people, all of whom ha have very different interests. It's about being persuasive. And to be perfectly honest, it's about being just blindly dogged at times and repeating yourself so that you can try and inch forward towards your recommendations. So that's the kind of less glamorous bit of readership. You know, I could conceptualize that into some wonderful theory for you, but it wouldn't help you much because what I'm telling you is the down and dirty truth. The, what, the things that keep leaders up at night are the, the things that affect people around them. And if they're good leaders, um, they will worry. I mean, I hope it doesn't give you too many sleepless nights because none of us should have that. But if it if it if you are worrying about tough decisions you have to make, then by and large, it's because you care and caring about people around you and the organization in which you work is probably the most important um, component um, of good leadership. So I'm afraid I'm not a leadership theorist. I think it's classic emperors, no clothes stuff. I think it's all a bit distasteful and you know contains a fair chunk of bullshit in my um, opinion. And the reason I say that is because I don't think there's a silver bullet for good leadership. There's no single formula. Um, there's no agreed code of leadership. There's no suit to be donned um, that you can slip on in the morning and become a different person and, and, and therefore an effective leader, almost like Superman. It doesn't work like that. It's about you to go back to my first slide. Um, if you're going to become a good leader, you have to become uh, an authentic one. And that's just a posh way of saying you have to be yourself. Um, and what you bring to the table is really, really very, very important. What you personally bring to the table. One of the prerequisites, I think, for you all, you're all in leadership roles now, I know, but in, in your leadership travels is to be prepared to stick your head above the parapet because it won't always be comfortable and it will always be pretty. Um, there'll be plenty of criticism leveled your way. There'll be plenty of abuse at times and there'll be some damn right nasty uh, and unpleasant uh, occasions too when because you're trying to do something differently or change or become more radical in your organisation, um, then people won't like it. So unless you're prepared to do that, you know, um, I think you probably um, are better steering clear of some of the uh, more senior leadership roles. But let me, on the other hand, give you a really um, important urge, which is that being in a leadership position and making a difference in an organization is probably one of the most fulfilling and rewarding things um, that anybody can actually do. I feel very strongly, by the way, that there are plenty of better potential leaders out there than those that we already have. Now, that sounds a bit controversial, but I'm putting up a slide now, which will explain a little bit about what I mean. Um, my argument is that we don't have sufficient diversity in our leadership cadre currently because we tend not to look at people around us who might not necessarily resemble the profile of leaders that we know. Now, I'm not just talking about identities here, like women um, or black Asian minority ethnic people or people who have a disability or younger people or whatever it is. I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about the essential conservatism of leadership, 
where we um, unconsciously or sometimes even consciously look for leaders either in the uh, mode of ourselves or who reflect leadership styles and approaches that we've been familiar with in our leadership journey and travels. And I think that's a mistake. And the only way we change that is being far more rigorous and self-analytical in our own leadership thinking. There are plenty of people out there who just need encouragement. They need asking, first of all. They need the opportunity, presenting them with the opportunity. They need to be shown uh, that you can be energetic and uh, enthusiastic in all you do. And they need development support. I believe there are far more leaders external to the current leadership cadre than there are internal. And the only way we will ever get a more diverse leadership group running Wales, whether that's public sector, whether it's education, whether it's academia, whether it's sport, the only way we will ever get there is if we reach out to those people and if we lean in, as the famous uh, phrase goes. So what do I mean by this quote, which I've used for a couple of leadership talks that I've given before, why we don't need a team of Gareth Bales. Okay, now most of you will have seen Gareth captain the side last night to that great win, which promotes us to um, uh, the A League of the Nations League and by the back door gives us a much easier route to the World Cup in uh, Doha in 2024. Um, So, you know, why don't we need a team of Gareth Bales? It sounds kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? Best, one of the best players in the world, easily the best player in the Welsh team. Why don't we just put out 11 Gareth Bales? My point is about difference and diversity. We can't have 11 attacking wide players in any football team. We need a goalkeeper. We need a right back. We need a central midfield player and so on and so forth. My analogy is we need different skills, different personalities, different abilities um, you always need a player who isn't going to um, do the silky things on the ball, but is going to give the easy pass. OK, that's what we should be looking for in our leadership teams. And we should be looking for people by measuring those talents slightly differently. My frustration with what we currently have in, in leadership, particularly in Wales, is that it's one dimensional. It's a perception of leadership that is heavily resting on existing experience. So we don't let people come to the leadership table unless they've already got significant leadership experience. And of course, that's a kind of vicious circle, isn't it? In in that how do you ever get to the leadership table unless somebody's given you an opportunity to develop your CV um, and build up the skills that you have in order to then take the next step? So it's up to us in roles to reach out and make sure that other people, often younger people, have an opportunity to. to join in. Otherwise, what we have is conservative self-perpetuation and the recruitment of leaders who play back our own strengths and weaknesses. And that's my point about a football team that isn't full of Gareth Bales. Difference and diversity um, means successful leaderships. There's a brilliant quote by uh, the American academic Margaret Heffernan, who who writes as a a political and management theorist. She was talking about the Enron crisis and she, she she talked about the Enron board as effectively demonstrating a collection of blind spots. And if you think about it, because it lacked diversity, that board missed the same things about the Enron crisis because they essentially had blinkers on, um, their own experience, their own background, their own profiles. It was overwhelmingly uh, male. It was overwhelmingly white. It was overwhelmingly over 55. So for all of those reasons, It was a collection of blind spots. And the crisis that happened in Enron, she claims, was due to the lack of diversity, 
and the uniformity of the board itself. Really important consideration, I think, when we look at trying to compile our different um, our different management uh, teams and our leadership teams. Okay, I'm not going to play you this tip, but I'm sure you all, you've all this clip. Sorry, I'm sure you've all heard of <clears throat> the songwriter and comedian uh, Tim Minchin, Australian Tim Minchin. Um, he, if any of you listen to the Fortunately podcast with Fee Glover and Jane Garvey, it's a very successful podcast on Radio Four. Um, if you listen to last week's episode, it's, it's certainly worth listening to if you haven't. But what was re really interesting was that Tim Minchin was their guest. And he talks a lot about his own kind of self-critique and self-awareness, which is something I really like about him. Um, there's a brilliant clip here, which I've put up for you. Um, watch it in your own time, because I suspect we haven't got time to watch it now. It's when he's awarded an honorary degree uh, at the University of Western Australia. Again, I've used this quite a lot, especially with younger people and students who love this clip, because he sets out nine life lessons about how to become a good person, as he calls it. Brilliant things in it. You you really appreciate this. My favorite one is that um, he says if he goes to a restaurant with an agent or somebody who's trying to get him to do something, or he'll often go to a posh restaurant. He watches how the agent or the sponsor um, talks to the waiting staff. And if they don't treat the waiting staff with the same courtesy and respect that they're treating him, Tim Minchin, he refuses to do the deal. And I love that. I like that attitude of not believing that any of us are better than anyone else but we're not worse either um we're equals and how we go about um uh our journeys in the leadership world is really very very important he also talked unfortunately to mention about the kind of liberal left sanctimonious tone that there is to uh politics and life generally and he's he's a self-confessed liberal lefty by the way so i think i can quote him on this um it's quite interesting because, you know, we're, we're all caught up in that a little bit, aren't we? In everything we do, we all believe that there is a kind of accepted truth about how to be a good educator, how to be a good academic, how to become a good sports coach. And it can be a very comfortable place to be, especially from a position of privilege. You know, we talked a lot about white privilege since um, the Black Lives Matter movement has gained, you know, quite rightly gained such traction over over recent months. And, it, and sometimes comfortable places are not good places to be. So that's a challenge for you. How comfortable are you at the moment? And we, all, by the way, we all get into feeling comfortable in a work environment and enjoying that comfort. But there's a phrase in sport, which I always throw at people, which is get used to being comfortable with the uncomfortable. Uh, Dave Brailsford used it a lot in British cycling. And by the way, British cycling is by, by far... Uh, is far from being an exemplar in terms of good governance or good leadership, as I'll tell you later. But Dave Brailsford, who is the uh, director of British Cycling, used to say the first thing we, we did as an organisation was become comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think it's worth asking ourselves that, because if things are too comfortable, you're not testing yourself and neither are you driving the organisation forward. A comfortable organisation is never an aspirational organisation or a hugely ambitious organisation. So if too many people are comfortable at any one point, um, you're doing something wrong. And the analogy Tim Minchin used was, you know, the, the number of people who say to him things like, I can't believe that people voted for Donald Trump. Or I can't, or in, in, in Wales and the UK, I can't believe the number of Welsh people who voted to leave the European Union. Um, even 
in some circles. I can't believe how many people voted Tory in the last election. Well, wake up and smell the coffee. This is the reality of our political society. And every position is entirely um, legitimate. And however people vote, um, it is their right. And they have every um, uh, right to vote in the way that they choose. What we need to do if we disagree with that choice is to try and understand, to try and acknowledge. We don't have to ultimately respect views if they we feel that they are disrespectful in themselves, but we need to understand the perspectives of others. And only only by getting to that point where we do understand the perspectives of others can we become good leaders and, and indeed good citizens for that uh, for that matter. So you'll have gathered by now that I, I'm not a conventional leadership theorist. I think what I'm offering you is a slightly different take on leadership, and, and it will require you to be a bit more challenging in your own self-analysis, I think, if you feel that there's something to be um, learnt from that. I'm a firm believer that leaders outside conventional leadership structures can be better leaders at times. I was thinking um, when I was writing one of my Wales Online columns recently about examples of good community leadership and you know I'm obsessed with sports so sport always leaps to the forefront of my mind but my, my elder daughter does um, taekwondo and she plays football and rugby locally but Annie's taekwondo class uh, taekwondo club is run by a mum and her two grown-up daughters um, and as soon as the lockdown happened in March they literally overnight translated all of their classes and I think they run classes for up to 250 kids in Cardiff every week they 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 moved everything online three times a week with brilliant ability to uh, follow the classes um, brilliant instructions uh, stuff sent out to us in advance so that the kids could get ready for the class and work towards their grading and their belts and so on um, and I also thought about the football club that Annie plays for at the moment, Canton, Canton Libs FC. Again, they were itching to get back after the fire break, immediately in touch with everybody, uh, reassuring us about the safety and, and so on. Um, and, you know, I, it made me think if that was in the university environment or, or heaven forbid, in Welsh government, and I'm allowed to say that, I think, in these circles, it would have taken about 15 meetings with a variety of different departments involved and probably twice as long to actually do it. So leadership is about getting on with it as well, quite frankly, not about holding a series of meetings in order to do something. Have a think about how much you look at your own leadership style, self-analysis, self-critique. This is so, so important. Now, I know these, these webinars are designed to, for you to do that. And certainly in the breakout rooms, I hope you'll have an opportunity to um, relate some of this to your own experiences in education. Um, but, but do give time to yourself on a regular basis. I mean, I know it's hard and I don't do it enough myself, but occasionally I do stop when, I, when I've got a slight gap in the diary and say, what have I done well and what have I done far less well this week? And if I've got two columns, by the way, there's always far more in the what I've done less well column. And I'll tell you why that's the case in a moment. Um, but but do that just by way of documenting your journey and where you are on that journey. Because as I said at the beginning, don't constantly aspire for the Premier League or the Olympic gold medal. 
Because in my opinion, there are medals and routes to be taken along the way, which will be just as rewarding. So don't see it as some kind of vertical ladder as you're, and you're gradually climbing up every rung until you reach the top. There is no top, effectively, because if you reach the top and you're not moving, you've probably failed as a leader. There's always a lifespan for every leader. There's a there's a duration at which you will be able to be at the best optimum performance. And once you get to the top of that kind of mythical ladder, you reach the Premier League, you win the title like Liverpool did last year. Um, think about it in sports terms. You move on to the next challenge. Do you think Jurgen Klopp is sitting uh, at home in Mel in Melwood in Liverpool's training base and thinking, I've done it now. I'm the first German to win the uh, win the Premier League, first time in 30 years, Liverpool have won it, I'm there. I'm going to sit back, put my feet up and have a cuppa. Straight away, as soon as the Premier League was won, he was back on the training pitch, back in the analytical room, thinking about how he could achieve the next success. And that kind of model from sport is, I think, what we've got to follow more um, in Welsh public life um, ourselves. So thinking about you, yourselves, being a good leader, um, I, I wanted to just discuss with you what the components of leadership are and and it really very much does start with you your personality your values your behavior your ego um by the way don't shy away from thinking about your own ego because everyone has an ego um it can get out of control of course and i've seen that in lots of organizations and shy away from those people who are kind of overtly egotistical in their in their um approach to their professional life there's a very controlled role for our egos, though, but it, it is necessary and we shouldn't be ashamed of talking about it. Why else would we be ambitious for our own careers if we didn't have an ego? Of course, we're ambitious for the organisations <coughs> excuse me, that, that we're working with. That goes without saying, in my opinion, that, you know, we want I want the Senev to be an effective parliament that delivers for the people of Wales. And I want the Football Association of Wales to be one of the best associations in, U in UEFA and in FIFA. But, but equally, um, some of it has to be about ourselves as well, because we've got to enjoy that role. And if we don't enjoy that role, we're not at our best. So putting you into your leadership is really important, but keep your ego, your ego on a, 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 a tight leash as well. Set that in the context as well of that organization. What are the organization's aspirations and ambitions as well? What do you want to achieve for them that is in line with what it wants itself? And sometimes an organization might not know what it wants in the next phase of its leadership. But there's always got to be a synergy or chime in of what you can bring to this organization, whether it's a school, a college, a university, um, arts Council Wales, National Museums, uh, your local community centre, school governing body, whatever it is, are your values, are your aspirations chiming with theirs? Because if there's a misfit or a disconnect, the chances are you're not going to be able to offer good leadership to that organisation unless you change a whole host of things within the structure um, of it as well. Be ambitious, OK, is my next prerequisite. Be ambitious, not just about yourself, but about that organization and that unit and that body. Um, if you are taking on leadership roles just to keep going and just to plod along and just to be comfortable with what that organization has always done, the chances are you're not being a good leadership. Um, I was trying to think of some good illustrations of this. And what one came up uh, immediately in my mind, um, because one of my favorite journalists died um, earlier this month. 
a lot of you will have heard of Robert Fisk, who worked latterly for the independent newspaper. Brilliant, brilliant journalist, in my in my opinion, mainly because he didn't trust what people told him. Um, that sounds, you know, a natural journalistic trait, but something not so good for us to employ in schools and universities and so on. But 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 bear with me. I mean, what Robert Fisk did was he challenged everybody's um, words to him. This is a guy who interviewed Osama bin Laden uh, three times, um, and he he always he was always skeptical and challenging and critical about everything that was told to him. <laughs> Clearly, he would, have, he would have been with Osama bin Laden, but with any politician that he ever interviewed. And if you read the tribute that was given to him uh, by the independent newspaper, I thought it summed him up perfectly. Uh, Robert Fisk was fearless, uncompromising, determined and utterly committed to uncovering the truth and reality at all costs. Now, that's what's important. You have to be challenging. If you accept the status quo in your organization. If you listen when somebody tells you it's always been done that way and that's how we do it, or you can't do that, it's too difficult, we won't be allowed to, then you're probably not acting as a leader. Don't accept things at face value if they appear to you to be better if they can be changed. But again, be polite about it, be courteous about it. It doesn't mean going in all guns blazing, shouting, screaming and bullying people around you. It means being clear, being forthright, having a very um, concise and crisp idea of what your aspiration is for that organization and then encouraging people um, to come along the journey with you. Let me move on to an absolutely fundamental component of um, leadership. The one I mentioned right at the beginning, constant learning, continuous learning. This to me is is so fundamental. It's uh, if if you haven't got an appetite for learning, then quite frankly, you you're probably not in the right profession. It's at the very heart of all improvement and success, in my opinion. Of course, that will fit very well with all of you as educators. That's what you do for for a living. But it's a really valuable exercise for all of us, I think, to give some thought as to the psychology of learning. From how do you learn, and from where do you get your lessons? How genuinely receptive are you to learning? Everyone talks about wanting to professionally develop. They want to talk, they want to prioritize their CPD and they want to learn. But how much time do you give to it, really? How much priority is it for you? Because your learning is not a selfish act. It's not about you. It's about your contribution to the organization um, more generally. And if you don't have a really healthy appetite for learning, the chances are, you are comfortable in your job. Remember what I said, being uncomfortable, being comfortable with the uncomfortable. Values are absolutely important as well. Um, I think good organizations rehearse their values on a very regular basis. I'm going to show you two photographs in a moment, which I think will encapsulate some of the changes in an organization in the values of an organization that I work with. But if you haven't had that conversation in your organization where you talk about what values drive you all as leaders, you know, is it equality? Is it family? Is it excellence? Is it success? Is it um, uh, is it bringing people with you? You know, what, what are the values that really underpin your organization. If you haven't had the conversation, I suggest you do. And I, look, nobody appreciates more than me that we don't have time often to 
engage in these kind of discussions in schools and colleges and universities. But, you know, time invested in this area is really, really very, very important. It's probably stru more structurally important than anything because it gives you a basis upon which you can then behave as an organization. And I don't just mean behave in a regulatory way. I mean, behave in an aspirational and in an ambitious way. I'm going to put up two photographs and switch between them for a moment. OK, um, have a look at this one, first of all. Um, it's sports related. OK, I'll explain what it is at, at the moment. But if I give you a clue, it's about women's football. It will um, tell you a little bit. Then have a look at this one. This is a UEFA meeting. You'll see me um, in the middle, um, the shortest in the back row, I think. Uh, um, but have a look at it just for a second. And then I'll tell you why I'm using these two photographs to illustrate my point. OK, the, fir the first one, as I said, the clue was this was um, uh, a photograph relating to, to women's football. It's Prostatin Ladies Football Club, or the three women in it are, meeting with the Football Association of Wales um, back in 1970. So quite some time ago now. Um, why is this picture relevant? Well, Pristatin Ladies Football Club were stopped from playing football um, for quite some time, from the time of their formation in the 60s, um, in the 50s, sorry, right the way up until 1970. And not just were they stopped playing, but there was a rule, Rule 34 of the FAW's constitution, that said nobody involved in Welsh football, that meant referees, coaches, uh, clubs, those who ran the pitches in the North Wales area could have anything to do with women playing. You'll all have heard about the ban, the English FA and the Welsh FA, for that matter, ban on women playing um, from wartime onwards. But some of these ridiculous rules perpetuated right up until the 1970s. Now, the reason I'm putting up that picture is this was the meeting that the Prostatin Ladies Committee had with the North Wales Coast FA. Uh, FA at which the rule was eventually repealed, not with any good grace, by the way, but um, out of reluctance um, and recognition that, that, that something had to change. So that was how women's football was treated then in 1970. Fast forward nearly 50 years. And this is the group of us who were charged with redrafting UEFA's strategy on women's football. Now, it's a good visual because look at the profile of the individuals who were there, um, predominantly female. You might say, well, yes, it's women's football. But bear in mind, football is by no means a bastion of equality. There are plenty of men running women's football in most countries. And in fact, predominantly, the governance of the game is dominated um, by men. We even have a baby. That's um, the vice president of the Finnish FA's uh, newly born son who joined us for um, three days of strategy meetings. The age range is younger, um, not not brilliant um, ethnic diversity, I have to confess. But on the point of gender, this shows just how far we've come uh, in, in 50 years. It's also important for me because when I reflect on my own leadership journey, um, I often get very frustrated at how slow the pace of change is in sport compared to the pace of change um, uh, sorry, how faster the pace of change can be in sport compared to the pace of change in politics, because my work is spans both areas. Um, and yet it reminds me that sometimes, you know, things even in sport can take quite a long time to actually uh, alter and generate. But our contributions to the change are really very, very important indeed.
Okay, let me, in, in kind of bringing things to, to a, a close, let me talk about some of the other really important components of leadership uh, as it strikes me. You'll hear a lot talked about soft skills, soft leadership skills, and it frustrates me that term because I don't think they're soft at all. They, they, they might be termed soft compared to hard skills like technical skills or IT skills or accountancy skills. But the soft skills that humans have, back to my title slide, it's about you, are the most important components, prerequisites of being a good leader. Um, emotional intelligence, empathy, understanding, respect, politeness, courtesy. You know, these are really fundamental things. Being able to communicate using different means or mediums uh, with different people because different things suit different people. Um, it's often said that women have better soft skills, but, you know, I take that with a pinch of salt because women have had to have better soft skills because they've been excluded from the arenas. So it's not as straightforward as that. Plus, by the way, um, softer skills in our professional words, uh, worlds are less valued and therefore less recompensed. So, again, there's a gender dimension um, to that. But, you know, it's, it's remarkable, really, isn't it, that we tolerate some really downright bad behaviours in leadership organisations. We, do, we, do, we, we tolerate arrogance, dismissiveness, a lack of respect. And Dominic Cummins and Lee Kane, anybody, you know, in terms of how they've run down in street until very recently. And yet all of that compounds bad leadership. It's macho, it's arrogant, but it doesn't achieve much. And in fact, the departure of, of Dominic Cummins and Lee Kane underlines that point because that was always skating on thin ice territory. It was never going to survive, really. Um, and, and some might argue it served its purpose. Others would argue it set back the political environment um, in, in that sense. How do you learn, okay, um, is a really important concept as well. Do you learn from success or do you learn from failure? Another good question to ask yourselves um, sometimes you learn from both simultaneously. And there's a strong link here with sport, by the way. Most athletes are terrible losers. And I, I include myself in that. Um, I used to think that was a bad thing to say. You know, I'm a terrible loser as if I couldn't cope with losing. But but it's not about that. It's about how much you don't like losing and therefore you prepare yourself not to lose next time. It's an athlete mentality. If you win, you tend to kind of park it, put your trophy in the cupboard um, and move on. Most sports people will tell you if we lose um, or if we come second, because it's not quite the same thing, uh, if we don't win, we tend to analyze, we tend to reflect, we tend to go back to the drawing board with our coaches, we tend to uh, look at the notational analysis and, and really investigate what the reasons were for us not winning. And whilst I think that can go to ridiculous extremes where people literally can't cope with not winning um, and therefore it damages their mental health, I think there are some useful lessons in there as well about how you assess um, your performance. And when you when things don't go right, and believe me, in leadership, if you don't know it already, you, I'm sure you do, um, there are far more failures than there are successes in any leadership role. If you don't learn from them, they'll happen again and you'll become a worse leader rather than a better leader. If you learn from them, Failure is the best platform for success. And I really, really strongly um, believe in that. It's vitally, vitally important to act as a springboard for your um, improvement as you go forward. OK, so I've talked a lot about self-awareness. I've talked about sticking your head above the parapet. I've talked about being you, being authentic, being confident in who you are. I've talked about the danger of being uh, too comfortable. 
Um, I've talked about the danger of inheriting an organization's values. At least to ask the questions about an organization organization's values. Um, what I wanted to finish with really was a sort of summary of the good learning fundamentals. Um, for me, learning is absolutely key to them. Um, your appetite and openness to learning. Um, change your organization culturally if it's not attuned to learning. So make it an organization that learns constantly and that there is a real acceptance of the, lear of the, of the learning culture. When somebody goes off on a course, you don't moan because they've left work for you. You say, oh, great. What are they doing and what are they going to bring back? And you want to do it next time if it's been a successful one. Be ambitious. I, I get so frustrated. I mean, any of you who've read my columns in the Western Mail will know this. I get so frustrated at the lack of ambition in Wales sometimes that we accept that we doing OK is all right. Well, no, it's not. In sport, doing OK is not all right. And the reason we're so successful in sport, the reason we've got our Aaron Ramsey's in Juventus and Alan Wynne-Jones being the most capped player, um, the reason Jay Jones is a multiple gold winner in, in Taekwondo is because sports people don't think just being good enough is good enough. They think being the best is what it's all about. And I think we've got to enshrine some of that in our thinking in other sectors in Wales. We've got to be more self-confident about what we can do. Because being small, and by the way, we're not that small. This kind of small nation thing is, is, is nonsense. We're average sized when you put us in, in European terms. Um, and being small anyway isn't, uh, 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 doesn't prohibit you being aspirational um, and ambitious. Conservative leadership does, by the way, and a leadership lacking in, di in diversity. And then there's this appetite and allure of difference and diversity. The team of Gareth Bales again. Don't recruit in your own image. Don't look for experience that is similar to yours. Embrace something that is really different and really, really enjoyable, you know, because working with people who are quirky, who challenge you, make you think different, who are edgy, who are disruptive at times, will help you no end. But you've got to not just say that, as lots of people do. They say, I love quirky leadership. It's brilliant. You've got to actually do it. So talk the talk by all means, but walk the walk as well. Um, there's a great Leonard Cohen song um, that says the cracks are where the light gets in. In fact, I think there's a festival alongside the Hay Festival that is called that. And it's true. Flawed organizations or quirky organizations where there are kind of they're not perfect, they're imperfect and people are imperfect. But it's the cracks where you get that creative challenge, where you get that quirkiness to become better um, and to become different. And remember that journey point. I hate that phrase journey, but there is no end point or destination to this journey. We're all aspiring to be good leaders. It's a constant. There's no end to this. Um, you need to know when to step down, sure, and I've given you a couple of tips about that. But leadership is for life and the journey is ongoing. We never actually get to that end point where we are the perfect leaders, where we know everything uh, around us. So acknowledge that your own leadership profile is not static. It's not rigid. It's fluid. It's organic. You're developing it as you go along. Take responsibility for your own learning and act upon it. Don't just bank the course or the CPD or attending these webinars, check them in your inbox and say, oh, that was quite interesting. It was a decent way to spend the morning. Do something from it because experiential learning is where it all comes from. You need to adjust your leadership style because things change around you. You can't be the same leader you were last year. Never mind the same leader you were 10 years ago. 
So I thought about finishing with um, a kind of great leadership moment. But then I thought, no, because quite frankly, you know, what good is that? There have been wonderful leadership moments in sport, in politics, in education, in government. But quite frankly, for me, good leadership is just as likely to be the unfussy, quiet style of leadership, not the great glamorous one, Barack Obama, Winston Churchill and so on. Quite frankly, I think a more effective leadership is the quieter, more drab style, if you like, of somebody like Angela Merkel in Germany or even our own Mark Drakeford. Somebody who gives you faith that they're doing, at least acting in our best interests without being overly charismatic or overly egotistical. Emulate good leaders that you see out there by all means. And if their style works for you, then by all means, encompass some of that in your style. But don't try and look for that coat of leadership that you drape <coughs> over you and you imitate uh, the person you've borrowed it from. Because it's back to the original point that I made right at the outset. Uh, a good leader is you. Um, it has to work for you and your values and your behaviours. You, basically, is all that you've got. Thank you so much, Laura. Oh, again, I just can't say how amazing that was this morning. And yeah, already I've been bombarded with questions, which is fabulous. Absolutely great. So strap yourself in and we'll get to... <laughs> I just want to say, you know, for myself, it's lovely to meet you again. I've been very lucky to have had a few opportunities within the Leadership Academy to actually listen to you, meet with you, and you know, find out so many different things. So thank you very much for giving your experiences and thoughts about leadership this morning. I think it's really interesting for all of us within the education system to listen to you. And we know we can learn so much from you, you know, the wider system sort of thing. So I know our attendees this morning have lots of questions, a range. We've got a range of leaders from across schools, primary, secondary, but also from youth sector and um, higher education. So there will be a range of questions. So I'd like to start with a very sporty person that I know myself, who I know will be absolutely, just can't wait. She's a fabulous netball player. <laughs> I'm going to invite, is Alwyn there? Hello. Hi, <laughs> I think that's the first time ever I've been described as a fabulous netball player. There's usually other words that are not quite as uh, <laughs> flattering as that. Uh, thank you very much. Um, you talk a lot about the human touch. And, you know, you take your learning from everywhere and anywhere. Now, I was wondering, um, you know, I over the years, I've learned a lot from other people that, you know, other leaders, other teachers. Now, I was wondering, when you looked back at your time at school, um, was there a teacher who inspired you? Um, who inspired you most and why did they inspire you? And did they have an impact on your learning journey over the years? Yeah. Oh, that's a great... That's a fabulous question. Um, and it's remiss of me, really, not to talk about some of the uh, leadership role models that I've had, because lots of them have come from the education setting. Um, and when I think back to my own education, it, it's a kind of... 
hard to separate combination of family and teachers' influences, but but together they probably uh, represent the single biggest influence and impact on my career and my life more generally. But but you've asked me, Olwyn, about school and teachers, and I can't speak highly enough uh, of the teachers that I've had through my time. You know, I went to, well, I went to one extraordinary school, which was a school Glyndwr, which was some of you may have heard of, which was an experimental school in, in Bridgend, um, set up when there wasn't effective Welsh medium education in the Midland Morgan area. By the way, that's a heck of a political issue, isn't it, if you, if you think about it? But um, that, that went, that, collapsed as a venture when I was just in Maithrin. So my elder sister did have three years of a Scotland doing that was very much an exceptional school taught by people like Gerald Lloyd Owen, you know, who won a chair at the Ice Deadwood and so on. But but anyway, most of the the my the rest of my education was in pretty um ordinary schools, but which proved to be extraordinary in that I went to Welsh medium uh, primary schools and then an English medium comprehensive, Brintillion comprehensive in Bridgend. Um, And the teachers there particularly had an enormous impact on my career, my thinking. I mean, just just to spring to mind, I had a Welsh teacher called Mrs. Anne Williams from uh, Porthcowl. And um, Mrs. Williams was, was... very much a product of the kind of grammar school system and then had come into the comprehensive system. So her style didn't suit a lot of people. And she certainly had a lot to contend with, with some groups. Uh, I can remember that from my own experiences. But she taught me how to read properly. And I don't mean read Welsh. I mean, I mean read literature and read poetry. Um, and, and I did A-level Welsh in school and um, what was then an S-level I mean, it's, an a, it's a very different system now, but an S level um, in Welsh, which was all about Welsh literature. And I remember reading people like Kate Roberts and Saunders Lewis and um, Gwen Aft and all the great Welsh writers. And I, I don't think up until that point, until I was sort of 17, did I really understand how to read literature and what to look for in literature? And Mrs. Williams is absolutely wonderful person lovely lovely person but she was also incredibly intelligent and and kind of understood the politics of reading literature you know which which when I think back now has has stood me in really good stead for being able to um, read critically in in later life so she was one that stood out and my my other teachers won't surprise you to say say, were the PE teachers Um, we were fortunate in that we had fantastic PE staff in Brintillion Comp I mean um, we had two who were former Wales hockey internationals and one who was a former Wales netball international. Uh, Bev Pierce was a hockey international. I don't know if any of you know, know, know Bev, but she was amazing. You know, all of them were amazing in all truth because I was a complete all-rounder in sport. You know, I wasn't kind of that good. I mean, I was, you know, obviously I was a good sportswoman, but there wasn't a single sport that stood out for me. Um, and football was a sport I most wanted to play. But of course, in those days, there wasn't any provision really in schools. So so the netball and hockey staff spent all their time trying to persuade me to go down one route rather than the other. Um, whereas really what I wanted to do was play football. But but in, but interestingly, all of the PE staff um, understood the kind of value of what you learned from sport. You know, it wasn't just come in because you're good. It was to encourage you to be able to think about teamwork and respect and discipline obviously and hard work and, and all all of that side of it really and back to my original point uh, or when that chimed 
a great deal with me with the influence of my mother. Um, I lo- we lost my mother nine years ago now, very suddenly. But my mother was your classic kind of working class girl who left school at 14 and then retrained, you know, retrained as a social worker um, in later life, despite having three kids, you know, which is not easy in itself. But my mother was a huge inspiration because she was somebody who'd, who'd you know, committed herself to education later in life um, and really understood the value of that. And, you know, my mother's attitude to everything was you can do it if you work hard and you have a bit of luck along the way. And I've always kind of operated by that principle. And that doesn't mean, you know, I'm not being um, dismissive of the challenges that come with one's career. But but I do think sometimes people overlook the hard work bit of it. You know, nobody gets to any position without putting in the hours and sport reflects that. You know, you ask you ask Aaron Ramsey, you know, how many hours he spends taking free kicks, you know, and he'll it'll surprise you. So I think the kind of hard work element came from my my education and from my family background, but also the kind of ambition, because, you know, when I, I remember saying to um uh, Mrs. Owen and and uh, Mrs. P.S. in school, you know, I want to play for Wales. I want to play for Wales in either hockey or in football. And, you know, it would have been very easy for them to say, oh, do you know, so, you know, you, you will probably won't get there or it will be a tough old slog. But instead of that, they said, well, if you're prepared to put the effort in and the work in, we'll help you every step of the way and you can do it, basically. And I think that kind of attitude of aspiration and and ambition was something that you know I really it really resonated for me and it's become really important to me you know I don't believe that our opportunities are naturally restricted they are systemically restricted by socioeconomic status and gender and everything else we know that but but there are ways around them as well with the right support network and and certainly my teachers gave me that kind of belief and self-belief which you know I think has helped me no end. Absolutely. Oh, it is. It's that ambition. And you do remember those teachers, those teachers back in school, don't you? It's so important. Thank you. I'm going to move you on now to one of the questions that I put in out in the breakout rooms, because I really I that resonated with me. That quote you said when you were talking, get used to being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Now, I know I've got a, a, a few questions. I think I've got a Rian Hindley. Would Hello. Oh, Hello. <laughs> if I can bring Rian forward. I know your group have been discussing this. So have you got a question to put to Laura? Yes. So first of all, thank you so much, Laura, for your refreshing and thought provoking presentation this morning. Um, we did have fabulous and in-depth discussion regarding a number of the points that you made during your presentation. Um, And you spoke earlier about becoming comfortable with the uncomfortable, and we were wondering, what did you do to become comfortable with the uncomfortable? (laughs) How did you overcome or work towards that particular hurdle? That's a really good question, Diolch, Rian. I'm not sure I am entirely comfortable with, with being uncomfortable, if I'm being really honest, because I have moments where I really crave comfort you know and I I crave that state of being comfortable in my professional life and having days when you know I'm not under pressure all day I'm not kind of pushing myself into the zone of being uncomfortable and and I but but I've actually learned what that means what it means is you can't constantly be uncomfortable in your professional career you know every day when you get up and you go into school or into college or anywhere else Um, You can't have a day where you are uncomfortable in everything you do. It's got to be moments. You know, it's it's like a kind of 
layer cake effect. You know, some of the time you'll be in that uncomfortable zone and then some of the time you'll be back in your comfort zone. And actually, there's nothing wrong with that. You need that because being uncomfortable can be quite disorienting and it can be quite, um, how can I say it? It can be quite scary, I suppose, is the best way of putting it. Because obviously, you know, that's it, it's it's a, it is what it says on the tin. Being uncomfortable with a situation means you're not completely at ease or confident with that scenario. But you can train your brain and your psyche to get what meant by that. Um, so what 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 have I done? Um, I've got to be really honest. I'm I'm a big fan of like jumping in at the at the deep end and or you know running under a cold shower i think you can hesitate it's like going in the sea isn't it you're down in langland bay and it's freezing cold um outside but it's september and you know it'll actually be warmer when you get in the sea but you know rather than dip your toe in and then go up to your knee and then up to your waist sometimes it's much better to just dive into the waves and get it over with and then you, you don't need to look back at the shore um so that's just a personality thing. I prefer that to kind of dive straight in. But but I also accept that there will be things that go wrong when you are in that uncomfortable zone. Um, I mean, I'll give you two examples because they're very live ones for me. Um, I get asked to do a lot of media um, interviews, you know, with the BBC and the like. And but actually, over the last nine months with COVID and the sudden interest that the network media has in Wales and Scotland because decisions have devolved actually more and more from the international media and from you know network and so on um and i don't mind doing any of those they're, they're you know they're in my field of research and I, i'll do as many as i possibly can doing things through the medium of welsh in wales is harder for me because welsh um is not my first language i mean i don't believe in the kind of first second language thing particularly but you know if i'm if you're not using the welsh language professionally on a daily basis it can be quite hard to do difficult political interviews in Welsh um, and for a while like I could sense that I was avoiding doing them I did lots on sport because it was easier um, but I did less on in Welsh on politics because it was harder and so I, I kind of addressed that directly and I said what am I uncomfortable with you know is it getting something wrong or is it offending somebody in the political world because the nuance isn't there and so on um, and and that seemed to me to be a good exercise in becoming more um, comfortable with that sort of tier of discomfort. And to be perfectly frank, the only way that I've been able to address that is by doing more of it. You know, um, I don't think you ever become better at something by preparing uh, at home and practicing. You, you know, ask any sports person and what you need is match fitness, as they call it. You know, you can train till the nth degree. But if you haven't been out on the playing field or out on the track, um, you'll never be match fit. So I think it's a case of actually just doing it in that case, you know, and becoming used to being more uncomfortable because, you know, nine times out of 10, the interviews are fine. I mean, you know, and, and there's another lesson, by the way, I think those of us, some of us can be overly perfectionist about some of the things we do. And sometimes good or very good is enough, you know, and, and believe me, we're, we're very self-critical, all of us. So we wait till we're absolutely perfect to do things, women, women particularly, actually, because I think we need the, the kind of reassurance that we can do everything before we embrace it. And some men, by the way. So sometimes you've got to accept that just being good is enough, you know, rather than being exemplar or excellent. That's one, one uh, area. The other illustration of this at the moment is that I put this up on one on my 
initial slide, and then I didn't talk about it because uh, we were running out of time. But I'm about to contest an election. I mean, I'm contesting an election for anything for about 30 years. So it's going to be a shock to my system uh, for a place on FIFA uh, Council, which is the world governing body of football. And that would be an election uh, for the UEFA women's position on FIFA Council. So I'll be standing against other European nations, obviously the Welsh representative, with the support, by the way, of the other British associations. Um, And as I say, it's, it's an area that I haven't really got that close to for before in my career and of course the world of sports governance and the politics underlying it is very different to anything that I I, I know about really um, so I'm having to find my way around that it's um, something that will obviously be of interest to the global media so there's a new dimension to you know exposure and so on so so that's another area where I'm kind of venturing into the uncomfortable away from my more comfortable zone but but let me just fi- finally say one other thing Um, Apart from not thinking that you've always got to be uncomfortable in every aspect of your professional life, be aware of the risks of it as well, because I quoted uh, Dave Brailsford and British Cycling uh, in my chat with you earlier on. And don't forget, British Cycling's had its problems. And some of that has come from this idea of being comfortable with the uncomfortable. You know, we've seen incidents of kind of sexism, bullying of athletes um, and doping uh, issues and so on. And, and the, the lesson there for me is that you can only be comfortable with the uncomfortable some of the time. And secondly, you need to anchor yourself in the right values before you do that. Back to the talk we, we had a moment ago. If your values are success at all cost, OK, so you just pursue in success, more medals, um, you know, great, greater Tour de France um, wins and so on, then you will come a cropper at some point. Because your values have got to be the things that anchor you back to fairness and equality and, and trust in your athletes and looking after your athletes in that case. And I'm afraid British cycling let us all down on that, as did British gymnastics, where we're seeing you know a whole series of abuse scandals being aired now. If you're if you're single mindedly pursuing the gold medal and that's all you're doing and you don't care what gets in your way, you just bat it out of the way, you will come a cropper at some point. And and so just take it with some degree of caution, you know, test yourself by being uncomfortable, but don't always try and be in that zone and don't blind yourself to the risks if you let go of your values as well. That's oh, lovely. Thank you so much, Rianne. Laura, you, you mentioned that the values and that's come across all morning, really, when, when you've been speaking. So through your own leadership journey, have you identified any key principles or values yourself that you can really identify with yeah um i could i could give you sort of you know the words here you know like excellence and success and all that but you know actually it's easier just to explain in ordinary person's language i think what is important to to me anyway and i hope some of these will chime with you um i think it's just, it's a sense of knowing where you come from. Um, that's really fundamental to me. And I don't just mean, you know, my family from my stig and I grew up in Bridgend and, you know, so on and so forth. I don't mean that. I mean, place is important to me, obviously, because, you know, it's, it's fundamental to how I was brought up and my, my, my values and ethics and so on. But I don't mean that. I mean, place is really, really important. Uh, sorry, values are really, really important. Um, and remembering where you're from, you know, I don't think for a minute that 
I am better than anybody else working in the fields that I work in, you know, whether that's academia, politics or sport. I think I'm as good as them at times. And sometimes I might be better than some of them in some things, but other times I'm a lot worse than others of them in, in other things. So I'm kind of aware of my um, foibles and my weaknesses and my failings. And I think that helps keep you quite grounded. You know, I don't, I don't believe that I have some divine right to get things, you know, whether that's a job or a contract or a consultancy or, you know, or a FIFA election in this case. And I know, I think I know how to lose gracefully from sport. I mean, sometimes it's less graceful than others, of course, you know, uh, but, but, you know, when I fight this FIFA election, I know I'm going to be up against an Italian woman who is um, uh, a sidekick of um, the Agnelli empire at Juventus. So they've got the power and the money behind them. You know, um, I, I know that I'm an outsider to win it, but I'm kind of not frightened of losing, you know, and I'm not just saying that in preparation for losing. You know, I'm, I'm aiming to win, obviously, but I'm not frightened to lose because as long as I've given it my best shot, if, if for whatever reason politics plays out or she's a better candidate than me or somebody else comes into the equation, then so be it. You know, what I'll do is learn from that and try and build on what I've taken out of the election in, in order to either do it again or help somebody else who's doing it after me. Um, so I think that's important. I think as well, family, you know, however you interpret family. I mean, obviously, if you've got, you know, if you've got kids, um, then, you know, they anchor you anyway, don't they? Because, you know, they bring you crashing back down to earth. I mean, my, I've got two girls and, you know, my girls, they love they love things like seeing me on telly. But mostly they, they'll they'll say to you things like, oh, you had a terrible shirt on, mommy, or you, you know, you said something silly or whatever. So it kind of brings you crashing back down to earth anyway. Um, and, and the same for friends, you know, I mean, I don't I haven't done this deliberately, by the way, but most of my friends are not not in the leadership sectors that I work in. My, my closest friends come from two different routes. They come from my school friends, you know, from Bridgend, which I'm still really close to. Um, and they come from my the girls I played football with, in all honesty, from the Welsh team in Cardiff City. And I'm still really close to them. I mean, a couple of them are god godparents to to our girls. And, you know, I think because they're not in the political or sporting governance worlds, um, we don't get bogged down with the kind of, you know, conversations about power and money and, you know, all of that. So so I think that's really important value. And then finally, and I could go on because I think values are absolutely fundamental to, to how I work, but um, finally, it's about equality. And, and again, I don't mean the kind of buzzword equality stuff. You know, we must have an equality framework. We must equality impact all this. I mean, blinking basic fair play for everybody. You know, it cannot be right when I showed those photos that women were not allowed to play football. And still girls in some schools don't have the same opportunities as boys to, to do sport and to, to play football, particularly Um so that's the kind of, you know, equality I mean, you know, fair play. You know, it cannot be right that black people are not represented in, in the structures of power across the United Kingdom, never mind Wales. You know, so, so that makes me really angry. So it's, it's a fundamental value for me and it, it makes me test what I'm doing against those principles. So fantastic. Yeah, it resonates so much. I can't move, you, move on, really, even though I've got hundreds of questions, um, move on without bringing... I just wanted to challenge a little bit because obviously sports, you know, that, that's your area. That's And the comparison really within sport, the sport arena, and of course us within education, between that element of competition, 
of the need to win. What are your feelings on that? How can you relate that to school and leadership? Yeah, I mean, I, I get that because, you know, I, I, I know the kind of politics of education around league tables and comparisons and, you know, improving schools and all that. And then the curriculum, you know, I know how much pressure you guys have been under with the rollout of a new curriculum, never mind COVID and everything that we've contended with, A-levels and all the rest of it, qualifications. So I don't, I don't want to give the impression that, you know, I'm saying sport is a great exemplar that can be translated completely into the education sphere. Um, but, but I will make two points there. First of all, when I talk about sport, I don't just mean competitive sport. You know, I mean grassroots sport, you know, the type I was talking about that my girls do and that I do. You know, I still play vets football, you know, in the local leisure centre. Um, and, you know, we're all shapes and sizes by now, you know, in terms of ability and so on. But, you know, the, these are really important well-being concepts, you know, for for children to be physically literate, you know, and to know their bodies is equipping them for life. You know, it's not equipping them for a career in sport. It's equipping them to be healthy and, you know, their well-being and their mental health to be right. So, you know, I don't just mean elite sport and winning medals and Wales qualifying for World Cups and so on. I mean, that whole joy that you get from the fun of playing sport and being active. Um, and, and I think that that there are a lot of lessons from that for, for all of us, you know, in whatever field we work in. But, but addressing your point, Sue, about competition, um, this won't be popular with everybody, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm kind of like an instinctively competitive person. Um, you know, if you give me any scenario, you know, like we, I'd be, I was playing backgammon with my partner in our caravan last week and I want to win. You know, if I'm playing anything, I want to win. But and this back to my point in the chat, I don't mind losing either if it's fair and square, you know, and I've learned something from it. So it's it's not an altogether bad thing to be competitive, but you've got to rein it in at times. Obviously, you know, you don't want to be overly competitive. And and being competitive is a vehicle for being aspirational as well, in my opinion, because, you know, I want to be the best I can. You know, I'm a firm believer that, you know, it's a short old life in it at the end of the day. You know, we don't know when, it, you know, when our time is up. So what's the point of just basking in comfort and, you know, relative prosperity when you could be pushing yourself and testing yourself a bit more? Um, I like people who've got that kind of mindset, you know, who want to, you know, want to do things not for themselves, but for the organizations they, they work for. And I and I think that is about competition, quite frankly, you know, because you've got to measure yourself against other people and in other organizations. But it's not competition at all costs. That, that was my point. Really. I know. And I thought that's where I thought it fitted in really well. That it is. It's about the participation, isn't it? It's that involvement rather than the actual competition. Thank you for that. Sorry. Okay. Right. I am going to ask now, can I bring in Gemma? Because your group sounds as if you've had a really interesting chat and you've got a good question. Gemma Prangley-Hunt. Hi, hello. Hi, Gemma. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. <laughs> Hi. Hi. We talked a lot around um, challenge and you talked around um, creating that kind of culture of, of challenge and how it was really good to challenge. So the question we sort of discussed was how do we encourage um, leaders to challenge, particularly if they're early on in their career um, and maybe don't always have the ability or perhaps the rationale behind what they're challenging, um, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense, Gemma. It's a really good point. Um I think there are a couple of things here. Um, I think you have to work towards a culture where challenge is the norm. Um, and that, that often happens top down in my experience. <clears throat> when I went into Sport Wales as chair, 
Um, you know, I, I was coming into an organization that was really successful on some things and less successful on others. And they weren't used to the kind of challenge that I was used to in the academic environment because, you know, academia is is kind of, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a weird and wonderful world, academia. And sometimes it really gets on my nerves, you know, and other times I love it. But but the one thing we do have is kind of the culture of powerful peer review because everything we do is peer reviewed. So, you know, if we write an article, six people will look at it and they'll absolutely slaughter you, basically, because that's the point of peer review. So, you know, we're kind of used to that culture of giving our work to other people and asking for comments on it. And when I went into Sport Wales, there was a little bit of that in the elite side. But on the rest of it, there wasn't much culture of challenge in, in my experience. So I had to really try and change things almost kind of from the top. And I don't like this kind of hierarchy thing. But, you know, I was coming in as chair so I could you know, manage the board a bit differently and then work with the chief exec a bit differently. So I, tr- I did it by getting them to challenge me, first of all. Um, so we, I changed to kind of a much different system of engagement and review. So before we planned, for example, for board meetings, I'd get the senior management team to give me a really kind of robust and tough critique of how the last board meeting went. And as part of that, I'd ask them to to draft kind of three things that I did well as chair and double that things I did badly or less well, let's say, because badly is not a good term to use and I deliberately asked them for more on things I did less well because of course people are reluctant to tell you you know to your face that things didn't go so well I also gave people the opportunity to do it kind of by semi-anonymously because obviously a small SMT is difficult to be completely anonymous but they could put you know we had post-its and we'd work around the table and we'd chuck all the post-its in without a name on it so people could say oh do you know you took too long to get to the point there or you you allowed the board not to get to the thing that was most critical for us or you talk too much yourself from the chair and of course that's difficult to say to somebody's face but you can say it on a post-it if you don't know who's you know who's chucked it in so there's some some things you can do like that um but the culture has to change it's very hard to get people who are less experienced to buy into this if you're not if you're not doing it everywhere in the organization and you've got to show that rewards come from it not penalties yeah I think you've got to show that people are um, trusted because they are open and honest and forthright. But but the culture will determine as well that it's done in the right um, spirit. You know, it's back to my point at the beginning. And I know this is going to sound really daft, but some people just don't have kind of basic um, ability to be courteous and polite about how they challenge, you know. Um, and, and that is unforgivable, you know, and if you don't have that, quite frankly, you don't venture into the challenging leadership terrain because, you know, you've got to be respectful of other people's views. And, you know, don't don't go in and just batter them with abuse, you know, or physical, verbal or otherwise, you know, think about how you would feel if somebody was telling you that and, and adapt what you say to to make sure that it's received in the right spirit. So I think, you know, anybody can do that. The other thing I did was um, I got some of the younger uh, colleagues who were not quite at senior management level, but were kind of directors of different areas or were technical people. So they worked, for example, as co- you know, coach educators or something. I got them to come to board meetings um, as observers 
Um, and, and then once they'd attended one or two meetings as observers, I'd say to them, right, come to the next one and I'm going to bring you in. I won't tell you when I'm going to bring you in, but I'll bring you in on a subject that I think you'll be interested in. And I want you to get used to talking to us, you know, and contributing. And it's a kind of journey for them then, isn't it? You know, as they become more confident and they realize they're not going to be slaughtered for saying something. Um, but, you know, it's about trust, basically, isn't it? It's about trust between you and the colleagues you work with and and showing that you're not offended. You know, I used to. It can be it can be hard, in all honesty. You know, if staff, are, are, you know, once they embrace it, they, they don't half go for it, you know, and they're throwing things at you. Well, it's quite easy if you're not a confident leader to be undermined by that as well. So you've got to rein it in a little bit and say, OK, let me deal with these issues now and then we'll come back and talk about the others. But it's about trust, I think, and mutual respect and, and showing people that you certainly won't be punished for anything you say. You know, that it the opposite of that, you'll actually be rewarded and, and promoted and given opportunities because you do. As long as you say it in the right way, of course. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think I've definitely learned that over the years. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you. That's <laughs> well, we all do. Yeah. <laughs> Again, Laura, everything comes back to the values. And I think that's the key here. It just resonates everything. You know, you talked then about trust and, and that's what it is, isn't it? It's to grow these leaders. Yeah. Right. Where are we time wise? Oh, OK, we've got time for a few more. I'd like to bring in, is Mark? Mark there, Mark Jones? Yeah. Not Dale, Dale, Mark. Sorry. Uh, so, Dale, Flora, I'm So refreshing to hear in your presentation that you think leaders need to be themselves, uh, be their own people. But in our group, we had a long discussion and felt that we're all being forced into these boxes to complete tasks and new initiatives all the time, not necessarily to the benefit of the school and pupils. So my question really is, do you think that head teachers and school leaders have enough freedom to become excellent leaders? Oh, that's a brilliant question. Um, instinctively, although, I, you know, I don't really have the base of knowledge to say this uh, categorically. So forgive me if I've got this wrong. But obviously, you know, I, I, I think a lot about education, you know, all the way through, really, from from kind of Maithrin and Kilch Maithrins, you know, around the place all the way through to universities, because I think, you know, everything that I feel strongly about can change through education. It's the, it's the single most important vehicle. So it kind of occupies a lot of my thinking, but I'm not an expert on it either. So, you know, with with that caveat, um, with that caveat, I'd say no, I think I think head teachers. Um, and the team around them are probably the single most important feature in Welsh education. Why? Well, because they shape the culture of a school. That's that's blatantly apparent to me. Um, and, you know, when I look at my daughter's school, I can see the way in which the head teacher determines the thinking and the ethos and the opportunities that they have there as well as the principles and the values that we talked about a moment ago. Um, I also think the way in which staff in that school are liberated to do what they're best at, which is to teach well, comes from the uh, profile of the head teacher and what he or she does with, with the, the school. Um, then it strikes me that there are far too many requirements set upon schools by Welsh government and this is where I'm venturing into the territory that I'm less expert on so you know forgive me if I've got something wrong here but but I think the most fundamental thing for me in our education future is the implementation of the new curriculum but with that autonomy for head teachers to apply it as 
suits their school best. Um, I think that's absolutely fundamental. And I think there should be fewer um, protocols and regulations imposed on you as long as your outcome is clear and the aspirations for that outcome are high. So, for example, because it's the area I know best, you know, the health and well-being part of the new curriculum, um, it seems to me to be a massive opportunity to embed physical literacy in schools, not not just PE now. I'm not just talking about improving physical education and, and all that side of it, but to get children really confident with their bodies at the youngest age and fit and healthy and able to do skills that will equip them for an active life. Never mind sport. They're not all going to be Jess Fishlocks and George Norths and all the rest of it, but just to keep them active. And to keep them well, because, you know, we know the impact of ill health on the NHS. So, I, you know, I would interpret that as being over to you, head teachers. You know, you, you do it. But, you know, if you don't produce a physically literate um, school population, then quite frankly, it'll be your head on the block, you know. And I think it's as simple as that. Um, if you know ways of doing it with expertise and uh, input from sport and physical activity providers, then you should be allowed to get on with it, quite frankly. Um, in a way that suits your school and your facilities and your outlook, but your ambitions have got to be high. That would be the only caveat I would put on it. I, I'd have a much lighter touch from Welsh Government and the Education Department, and I'd say to you, right, tell me what you're going to do. If your aspirations are suitably high and you show me a delivery route, I'm not going to bother you for the next uh, 24 months until we re review how it's going. So, I, you know, I do kind of feel for the education um, professionals because I think – it's a kind of tightly controlled area, isn't it? And we get a little bit of that in the higher ed sector. You know, we're right in the middle of a research excellence framework at the moment. So we're all having to submit our publications and our impact work for judgment. And it's like this, it's this total micromanagement stuff, you know, which frustrates me. It was never, you know, I do understand where it comes from, but it frustrates me. We've got to become more outcome driven, you know, so that we allow the freedom to head teachers to do what's best for your pupils because you're the people who know better than anybody i think i'm going to come in there mark you know to follow on really from your question because you know, it, it's spot on you talked earlier and it, it, it stuck in my head really about the the slower pace of change for politics even for sports to some extent whereas i know head teachers myself included we get really concerned about the fast pace of change in education how you feel about that yeah yeah I mean I you know again I sympathize you know because I, I can see obviously having a massive change like the curriculum is enough and now we've got the whole qualifications issue haven't we because of you know the the COVID impact on A-levels and GCSEs and so I feel for you all you know I mean I think it's hard enough for us in higher education you know trying to re revamp assessments for our students whilst they're not able to be with us really so I know I know how difficult it is but I think we've got to um, we've got to embrace moving faster generally you know I think that's one point I would make um, the whole of the the Welsh public sector I'm going to get in trouble here if I'm not careful but the whole of the Welsh public sector I think has traditionally been too slow um, not its own fault just because we've had this kind of massive monolithic kind of bureaucracy around it and so one of my biggest frustrations when I was chair of a public body was that we couldn't do the things we wanted to do because somebody would stop us doing it. And, and actually, I think we could have moved faster and better if we hadn't had all these things chucked at us simultaneously. And so 
There may be something in the previous question that answers this, which is if you're constantly trying to meet the requirements of Welsh Government on a whole host of things and fill in multiple forms on everything, um, you're not, you know, that might feel like fast moving. But if you got rid of some of that, you'd probably be moving at the pace you wanted to anyway, if you see what I mean. We've got to start asking, I think, in, in political circles, why are we asking for this information? Um, I, I, you know, I, it used to make me really frustrated that we'd be asked for data in Sport Wales, which was either already there or had no value, you know. And, and any time I pushed back at Welsh Government and said, why are you asking for this? They'd say, well, we've been collecting this for 10 years. And it's back to my point, you know. That, that is so far from the point, you know, just because you've been collecting it for 10 years doesn't mean it's of any value. Um, so, you know, we've got to be able to push back at some of that. But but equally, I don't I wouldn't whilst I appreciate the comment and the, where it's coming from. I think we've got to embrace relatively fast moving um, agendas now because we're in very different times. So, you know, COVID, Brexit, um, qualifications, all of these things, you know, if we if we don't move fast, we lose a generation of, of young people who won't have the benefits of a, a good education. So I guess it's a case of kind of sucking some of that up for now, whilst also pushing back at some of the less positive initiatives Absolutely. that are coming in. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for that. I'm conscious it's gone to 20 past and I'm already eating it. And there's, there's so many more questions. <laughs> I know Gail's got one from Castellaner. Is it Gail Shenton? Just to... Are you there still? I know, obviously, a lot of our leaders have to go on to lunch duty, so I don't know if she's... Have you, yes, is, I am. Uh, a one minute... Uh, it links, really, to Mark's question. Do you have my video board and Arbennig, my best It's been an uh, yeah. excellent morning. Thank you so much. Um, I, I was just thinking about going back to Mark's point, really, about trying to get that balance between management and leadership, because leadership is the fun yeah. bit, isn't yeah. it? And management is the less fun bit, then. And how do you get that right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, I don't know if any of us have got that right, Gail, to be perfectly honest, because, you know, it's a constant push-pull, isn't it, really? You know, we've got to do all these things, you know, whether it's marking a pile of essays, you know, in in our case, or, as you say, lots of the administration that you have in schools. Um, that's got to be done. But but I think, you know, my my attitude to that, really, is making sure you carve out at least some of your day every day for the leadership role. You know, don't get sucked into doing a day of management and administration, because I think culturally that can have an impact on the way you think. You know, um, there will be days for obvious reasons. You could be in the middle of an inspection or something where everything is like admin focused, you know, and like like us now with ref, you know, in the universities. But but always keep some time in the day, even if it's half an hour where you lift your head up away from that and you say, OK, what what are the leadership challenges and what are the leadership issues I need to contend with now? Um, and even if it's just half an hour of scribbling on your laptop, what you've got to do when you've got more time on that, I think it, it reminds me of his leadership bit, you know, and, and also about making sure when you're busy with the management side, you can delegate some of the leadership role to somebody as an experience, you know. Um, I'm just thinking about ref stuff at the moment because I'm involved with our ref prep in the department. And, and I haven't been able to do some other stuff I'd like to have done on teaching development. But we've got a really good new lecturer who joined us this year. And I said to her, look, here's a great chance for, for you. I've been asked to speak at this, this and this, which is relating to the module. Do you want to go in my place? You know, and I'll brief you. I'll give you the prep and everything. So, you know, you can offset it and help develop somebody else at the same time. Then if you if you're swamped with management stuff. 
That's good advice. Thank you. And I think some of the things we've done with yourself and the other people that have spoken to us, I'd love for the younger people in my establishment to be able to see that, to be inspired as well. Because, you know, it's very important. Thank you for that. No, we'll take that on board. Thank you. Thank you very much. Deal. Even though there's more questions, I I, I have to stop now. The time is going. I I know I asked you to do a little bit longer um, feedback, but it's going to have to be quite short. We want to make sure everybody gets away for half past. Yeah, of course. No, I understand. So I just want to, on behalf of myself and the Academy, just thank you so much for everything you've done. If you can sum up for us, if that's all right, and then one of our associates from Cohort 3, Simon Roberts, will finish off. But thank you very much for this morning. Great. Well, just it's been really inspiring for me you know to, to talk to all of you because you know as I said education is so fundamental really and I, and I appreciate very firmly how difficult your roles are so it's it's really it's really um valuable that you spend time on your leadership thinking as well and I've, I've learned a lot from talking to you today I guess you know the things that have come out for me really is how how do you balance that kind of day job stuff with you know the higher level leadership thinking um and i think this is a kind of thought um resource as much as anything you know it doesn't have to be during the school day or you know or or, or even you know at certain times of the day but when you get a moment invest in your own leadership thinking you know it could be just listening to a podcast or um there's there's loads of of things which are being launched at the moment a new leadership podcast on Radio Wales, which was launched last night with the interview with Chris Coleman, the former Wales manager. You know, and these are light things. You could be listening to them when you're walking the dog or, you know, when you're cooking in the kitchen or something. So invest time in leadership, even if you're completely swamped with management. The other point, I think, which seems to have resonated with you is that, you know, this isn't a simple journey that you're going from step A to step B to step C. You're not going from League One to the Championship to the Premier League. You know, because there's no there's no end point to this. We're all on the leadership journey. I don't know all the answers, as you'll have gathered by listening to me. Um, but I, but I'm up for learning, you know, and I and I like learning. And if you can embrace that psychology of learning, and if you can really enjoy it, then then you will become better. And by becoming better, you'll bring other people along with you because. You know, it's it's seductive, isn't it? When you're working with somebody really talented, and I've been fortunate to work with some great leaders, you know, people who've inspired me no end. Um, just thinking of one here, Teresa Reese, some of you will know, who, who was a professor in Cardiff University, and Terry, you know, mentored me as a young academic, and I've been able to ask her questions all the way through my career. But, you know, the, the reason she was a good leader and she was seductive as a leader was because she listened to younger colleagues like me and she didn't treat us or patronize us, you know, as, as inexperienced. She just listened to us as equals. So by becoming a better leader yourself, you will inspire other leaders around you. And there's nothing more um, satisfying career wise, in my opinion, than seeing somebody better than you come behind you. That that it's like football, you know. I love seeing the, the current Welsh women's team because they're better than we were, and the reason they're better than we were is because we trailblazed on some of the things they needed, you know. So if you can do that, and bring people with you, that could be the most fabulous leadership legacy you'll ever have. So I'll, I'll stop there because I know Sue's going to be worrying about time anyway. Can I just say, Laura, on behalf of Simon Roberts here um, from Cohort Three, I've been asked to, to to say some thanks at the end. 
thank you very much for such an inspiring, um, honest discussion this morning. I can see from comments in the chat and also from our WhatsApp group that, you know, I think everybody's found it enlightening this morning. Um, and thank you for finding the time in your must be a very busy schedule to, to come and talk to us about leadership um, today. Um, you know, the, the roles that you've had have been inspirational and it's been great to hear the, the particular comments about leadership being transferable across the sectors, for instance, from, from sport into education. Um, as, a, as a Queen's Park Rangers supporter for 45 years, I like the analogy of staying in the championship and uh, I can only hope that success we've got a lot of success ahead of us. Um, I think the, the important message I take from this morning is the last comment you made there about investing time in leadership, I think is really, really important rather than getting bogged down in the mundane um, issues that we have about harnessing the positivity that you have as a person and the issue and, and things that we have as people that, that make us um, leaders. And we were chosen probably based on those values in the first place. So not losing touch of those. Um, being authentic and reflective and, and spending time looking at people from other sectors. And I know that's something the Academy is really keen to look at other sectors um, and to be inspired or get, um, to, to get um, ideas from, from other sectors in how to lead. Gobeithio'n eich bod wedi mwyn hair bennod hon o bodlediad yr Academy Arwynyddiaeth. Tan ysgrifiwch ar Spotify, podlediadau Apple neu Google a pheidiwch byth a cholli pennod. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Academy podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts and never miss an episode.